Hi everyone. This episode I had a really enjoyable conversation with Dr. Ellen Hendrickson. Ellen is a clinical psychologist who has helped millions of people calm their anxiety and to be their true authentic selves through her award-winning Savvy Psychologist podcast and her work at Boston University Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. Our conversation with Ellen looked at social anxiety, why she became interested in it and what you can do to help it. It was really lovely to chat to Ellen and if you enjoyed this chat, please give us a rating on iTunes and check out more of Ellen's work in our show notes. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Helen. How are you? Fine. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so just to start, we always ask what your kind of relationship, both personally and professionally, to mental health is. Sure. So I think I'll answer the second part first professionally. So I am currently a clinical psychologist, and I work at Boston University's Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. So I specialize uh, in you know, treating patients and specialize in anxiety, and my subspecialty is social anxiety. And there, that brings in the, the personal part of your question. So when I was in grad school, I was interested in um, like behavioral medicine, so the, the intersection of physical and mental health. And just through different people I met and some wonderful mentors kind of pivoted from first working in HIV to then working in cancer. And then I met, I met a, a mentor who was working with folks with stage four cancer and anxiety which is everybody with stage four cancer, but the, that, you know, that makes sense. And, and the, I, I, I loved the, the projects that he was working on, but I was really fascinated by, um, by anxiety. And I, you know, I, I had certainly known a little bit about it, you know, in, through my training, but, but this was the first time I'd really gotten to kind of settle into that world. And it was fascinating. And so then, you know, moving on to coming to the Center for Anxiety, when I got here, I thought, these are my people. <laughs> I've, I have found, I've found my clinical home. And, and only, only recently, I think, have I really linked that back to my own experiences. You know, like a, lo- a lot of people will go into mental health because of their own uh, mental health experiences or their own background. Like it will, it will drive them towards that end. And mine was kind of backwards. Like I got there. And then realized, oh, maybe maybe this is what I was meant to do. Because personally, I have a history of of social anxiety. I remember, you know, not wanting to raise my hand in in class. And if I did have to talk, I would tremble and sweat, and I wouldn't be able to focus again for like a good ten minutes afterwards. If I went to a party, you know, I would look and look at and talk only, you know, to the people I came with and everyone else was just a blur that I just kind of like actively avoided. And I've come a long way. You know, I, I used to, uh, one of the things I, I always say is my, my wardrobe used to consist only of black, white, and denim for, for years. And now my favorite color to wear is orange. You know, I can speak in front of people. You know, I still, I still get anxious, but I can absolutely do it. I can fake it till I make it. Um, and so I've come, I've come a really long, 
way, but, you know, I certainly still have my challenges. So I get kind of weirdly formal when I talk to authority figures. You know, I still don't like being on camera, but I can do those things. And I think that that's, that's the, the message that I want to, to you know, spread is that if, if somebody is struggling with anxiety, that first of all, there is hope that, that there is hope for change. But also second, that even if the anxiety never entirely goes away, that's okay. And that if, if you can practice and take on challenges and grow and stretch and get to the point where the anxiety doesn't own you and you can do the things you want to do while anxious, that is success. Yeah, so was it kind of a case of when you started to work in this field that you realized that you may have had this stuff before? Well, I think I had I'd certainly uh, had an inkling before um and i remember like in my training studying about social anxiety and saying hey this i I identify with a lot of this um but 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 never really feeling like i had come home to it per se until i started working with people with social anxiety and just really really i love doing that people with social anxiety i have found are some of the nicest uh just loveliest people, and it's it's a privilege to help them get to realize that, because the heart of social anxiety is an idea. It's a it's a it's a perception. And I guess I want to I want I definitely want to emphasize perception that something is wrong with you, that either there's something wrong with your appearance, like you're too fat or you're too ugly. There's something wrong with your symptoms of anxiety that you will blush and people will think you're weird or that you will shake and people will think that you're weak uh there's there's that there's that sense of of being found out and then the two other buckets are the that your social skills are not up to par that you're boring or that you have no personality or something like that and then the fourth bucket is your kind of your entire character is is off that you're stupid or that no one wants to be around you or that you're a burden and so that that internal perception that gets carried around makes us try to work very hard to conceal that and that we fear the reveal the sense that people will see that it will become obvious that we are whatever we perceive again perception is wrong with us and that everyone will judge and reject us for it. So, so there's this, there's this real mismatch between how folks with social anxiety actually are in the world. And again, they're inevitably just the nicest people, but there's this sense uh, that somehow they are deeply flawed and that that drives uh, all this fear and a lot of the behaviors and avoidance that are associated with it. Do you find it kind of therapeutic when you see patients with with social anxiety for your own social anxiety? Um, yes and no. I guess yes to the, sense, to the extent of that it's, it is nice to be able to connect with them on m- more than just a theoretical level. That, you know, I think maybe with some other uh, diagnoses, I, I certainly know what to do. Um, I understand, like, for instance, like OCD or PTSD, but, and so I can, I can absolutely uh, treat them effectively. I don't have to have walked in their shoes to, to do that. Um, but at the same time, it is, it is really nice with the social anxiety folks to be able to really nod emphatically and say, okay, I get it. I get it. I haven't, I haven't you know, I've certainly, I don't want to uh, 
project my experience onto them or to think that I know exactly what they're going through, but I can share enough of uh, what, how they see the world that um, it's, it's, it's refreshing and satisfying to be able to, to connect with them in that way. I, 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 because it's therapy, I don't disclose. I don't say, oh, I know what you're talking about, or oh, this happened to me, because it's, no, this is about them. This is their hour. And so I certainly do not inject myself or my own experience into my work with them, but it's, it, it is a nice connection that I feel privileged to have and enjoy. Yeah, that makes sense. So what, what kind of typically causes what kind of starts social anxiety? Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so in general, I think we, the, the, the analogy I like to use is that those of us who are wired to be anxious uh, are, are kind of born with this kind of lump of like anxious clay or like anxious Play-Doh and that our experiences and our, the modeling we see from our family of origin or the, the different experiences we have are, are going to shape that clay into whatever particular, you know, anxiety disorder or, or challenges that we might experience. So a, somebody who is bullied, for example, um, very well might end up with social anxiety disorder because they, they have seen through experience, like, oh my goodness, like I, I am seen and I do get targeted and there is, the people have said there, there is something wrong with me. But more often it is uh, just kind of, it's, it's in the air. We, we, rather than just one um, kind of singular formative experience, which it certainly can be, there is just a, a, a modeling from, from, from what we see in the world that leads us to it just seems to be in the air or we learn from our family of origin that that we um need to conceal something or that uh somehow we are we are not adequate um so there's 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 that but then there are also many other just kind of temperamental things that that drive social anxiety as well the biggest of which is perfectionism so there's a sense in social anxiety that either we are, you know, cool, calm, collected, entertaining, uh, brilliant, or or we're a total failure. There's there's very little in the middle, and we think we need to perform well. And if we don't do that, or if we don't do so comfortably, that we're flailing, that that we've we've tripped the laser maze, and alarms are going off all around us. Yeah, and is do you think to a certain extent that um, that everyone has social anxiety, and what what's the kind of difference between um, having it as a kind of as a disorder or a, a, like a clinical way, and having it as more just a kind of low level part of your personality? Oh, absolutely! I'm so glad you asked that. Yeah, uh, so I would argue that you know what I call lowercase s, you know, social anxiety. Is, is normal. So if you ask people if they are shy, 40% will say yes. And shy is just kind of an everyday way of saying socially anxious. It's feeling, you know, feeling self-conscious, feeling a little bit insecure. Um, but if you change the question and you ask, were you ever shy? Were you shy as a child? Were you shy or awkward as a teenager? 80% of people will say yes. And that's a huge majority. 
Plus, you know, 99% of us can identify with socially awkward or socially anxious moments. And so, for instance, there are times when it's absolutely normal and appropriate to, to feel self-conscious or anxious, like at a job interview or on a first date. And those things are universal. We can, almost all of us can identify with those socially anxious moments. So where it crosses into a disorder, and for 13% of us in the U.S., 12% in the U.K., um, it, does, it does cross that line, and that is when it gets in the way of living your life. So, for instance, if a student in class decides, well, I am just not going to raise my hand. I can't, and so therefore I'm just going to forego 20% of my grade, which is class participation, because I just can't do that. Or if somebody were to turn down a promotion because it would then require them to give presentations, then that, that is a sign that it's, that it's getting in the way of the, the life that they want to live. And that's, that's when it crosses over into a disorder. Another sign is that the distress that it causes is way out of proportion to the event at hand. So we all might feel a little bit anxious, say, showing up mm, in a new exercise class. Let's say, say we're gonna say we decide we're gonna take up karate, and so we show up to the to the first class. We might be a little on edge, or you know, not sure what we're supposed to be doing, and feel like that we're gonna maybe be judged by the people who've doing it, who've been doing it for longer. But if that anticipation makes us lose sleep and gives us GI problems for a week beforehand, that is out of proportion. That suffering is, is disproportionate to the task at hand. And so that, that disproportionate response would also indicate uh, social anxiety disorder. But again, like I said, every, almost everybody can relate, and a, a huge majority of us have felt dispositionally socially anxious at some time in life yeah and it's a perfectly natural thing to feel absolutely so i guess i guess the thing i should tack on there is to say that the the good news is that no matter where you fall on that continuum that there is hope and there are you know really great ways to you know stop letting fear get the best of you and to build confidence and to be that self you are without fear or to do the things you value even with the fear yeah that was actually going to be my next question so what kind of um, what kind of tools can you build in to to help you if you're if you're going through it, both as a kind of clinic, clinical uh, social anxiety or just as a kind of low level um, social anxiety? Sure, sure. So I will give you uh, I'll give you I'll give you three tools. So one is to turn your attention from the inside to the outside. So generally, when we're in a socially anxious moment our attention will turn inward and we'll start monitoring our performance. So we'll think like, oh, why did I just say that? Or, oh my gosh, I probably sounded like an idiot. Or, you know, should I, should I put my hands in my pockets to look more casual? You know, can they tell that I'm nervous? And so our, our bandwidth, because we're focusing inward and monitoring our own behavior and how we're doing, that our bandwidth to concentrate gets eaten up and we have very little left over for listening and responding and attending to the moment. So in order to, to remedy this, what we can do is to consciously turn our attention outward, to, to turn it from me, me, me 
to them, them, them. So to you know to listen very closely to whoever is speaking, to to look around at where you are and focus outward, and to essentially pay attention to anything except yourself, and that will ground you in the present and free up that bandwidth and allow you to respond more naturally. It feels kind of dangerous to do that because we think we have to monitor ourselves to keep ourselves from screwing up. But in fact, when our bandwidth is eaten up, we can appear distracted. We can appear like we're not really listening or in the moment. And also, we don't have the, enough bandwidth to like not spill our drink or to not trip over our own feet. So uh, counterintuitively, focusing outward on the people we're with and where we are can make us respond more naturally in the moment. That's really interesting because the way I kind of got in, interested in um, in mental health was through my own issues with um, chronic pain, which kind of morphed into uh, into depression. And one of the things that I found with chronic pain is similar to the kind of social anxiety thing that you're constantly looking inward, searching for pain and, and watching out for it. Um, yes. And you're not actually there's a kind of glass barrier between you and paying attention to anything to to what you're actually doing, and one of the that big and one of the big ways you can you can kind of improve is by um, it's it's hard but one of the big ways you can improve is by kind of paying attention, like you said, outwardly rather than trying to focus inwards. But it's quite a hard mm. thing to um, to do, especially if you if you're in a moment of in my case if you're in a moment of having a pain flare-up it's quite hard to focus outside so I suppose Absolutely. it must be quite hard if you're particularly anxious about uh, one thing to, to, to kind of turn that focus outwards it is it is hard I, I, I don't want to imply that it's you know it's, it's easy you know you'll get it right the first time but it's a, it's a skill and and so I, I liken it to um, trying to ignore and focus while there's a loud radio on in the background that 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 kind of continuing to to practice and to try to you know block out the radio it's still going to be there you know that that inner critic that we all have will still you know be whispering to us but if we can focus on the people we're with and to be curious and be interested in in what's happening outside that will that will make it easier over time to to accomplish that yeah so it's just using it as a practice so not beating yourself up when it goes a bit wrong Absolutely. And what kind of other ways are there that you can um, that you can improve the lives of people with, with living with social anxiety? Sure. Yeah. So I think the so the second second thing I like to um, to offer is to uh, to give yourself some structure. So to give yourself a role to play or a mission to fulfill. And so, for instance, like this could be done formally. So like if you're a member of an organization, like a great thing to do is to take on a leadership role. Or, uh, you know, because then you have a reason to, to talk to everybody, like you have a duty to fulfill. You can also do this informally. So like you and your friends can, you know, make a goal to, you know, try every, I don't know, Mexican restaurant in your town. Or like if you go to a birthday party, you could assign yourself the task of talking to three people you don't know. Or like if you're in a networking event to give yourself the, the task and the structure of trying to uh, exchange business cards with three people. And so what, what these things do, like creating structure where there is none, gives you a purpose and takes away the biggest driver of anxiety, which is uncertainty, is you know, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing how you will handle things. And so if you can give yourself an assignment or a goal 
that keeps you engaged, you know, not, not an assignment to go do the dishes at the dinner party, you know, but an assignment that will keep you uh, with, with people, um, that, that can go a long way to reducing that uncertainty and helping you stay present. Yeah, and something else that I've read um, that you can use to kind of overcome social anxiety is kind of exposure. It's kind of, I suppose it's very similar to what you were just saying, but exposure to rejection or your fears and removing the kind of safety barriers that you put up, which again, I can link that back kind of directly to pain because um, I kind of had to strip things back to kind of... um, to only doing very 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 short amounts of exercise or only doing very very short amount of of desk work just to kind of remove the fear of doing it um so you could build up that kind of tolerance again and i don't know if you can you see kind of parallels with that absolutely yes no and i'm actually really glad you brought that up because so the the single best way to overcome social anxiety is to do the very things that you're afraid of and i always say you know you don't have to jump in the deep end of the pool. You know, if you're afraid of public speaking, you don't have to give an hour-long talk to 500 people. But, you know, to, to, to kind of inch your way into the pool. And so that could be, you know, uh, asking the waiter for another napkin. It could be um, just saying hello to, the, to your barista. It could be, like, just little, little things that we sometimes build into our lives as avoidance that we, that we, don't, we, we just don't do by habit. Um, a classic is that uh, we might walk the long way around to avoid uh, running into people we might have to say hi to or to avoid um, going to the gym or the grocery store when it might be crowded and people might you know, inspect what's in our carts or you know, look at us while we're exercising. I think you, know, it's, it's, you don't have to push yourself all the time, certainly. Like, you don't have to throw yourself into a crowd. But to think about, like, where, you know, where is my social anxiety holding me back? What, do, what would I be doing if I wasn't anxious? And to very slowly start to do those things. And, and so that, what, what that does is it refutes the two lies, essentially, that social anxiety tells us. One is that the worst case scenario is bound to happen, that you know, the worst thing that we are feared outcome, people are going to laugh at us or... Um, people will think we're stupid or, you know, will be rejected is, is a foregone conclusion. And so by that, that's why we avoid it, right? We don't want to find that out. But when we, when we have ourselves, you know, inch into the pool, we get experience under our belt and evidence that most of the time are, you know, nothing bad happens, that people are nice or that it's, it's that we were safer than we thought. The second lie that social anxiety tells us is that we can't handle what will occur. We can't cope. And so, again, that experience and and inching into the pool by doing the things that we are afraid of lets us know that that we can handle what comes up and that we are stronger than we think. And so, so... just like you said, with, you know, kind of approaching things that like exercise or, you know, desk work with chronic pain, the exact same concept can apply to social anxiety. Well, the key thing for me was that you had to do it slowly and it kind of felt, it feels, it felt to me really stupid and pointless at the start, just how far you had to strip things back. So it would be like 30 seconds of desk work, but then it kind of does, if you 
rigidly stick to it and you keep going, mm-hmm. it does increase kind of exponentially quite quickly. Um, yes. And I can imagine that's the same with um, with kind of putting yourself into situations where you may be socially anxious. Right, right. And I think so. what I tell clients also is that it's you're not going to see the change in real time. Like it, it's something that you will look back at and see, you'll say, oh, you know, hey, I never would have gone to a holiday party without, you know, plotting how I could skip it before. Like, I would never have kind of put in my earbuds and kind of rocked out in public, you know, to the music. I never would have browsed in a small store where the owner could see me and then left without buying anything out of guilt. You know, like, we, we will we'll, we'll do, as, as we uh, deliberately do the smaller things, like a kind of a rising tide lifts all boats, like other things will change. And it's only when we look back after we've done those things, we're like, oh, hey, that I that's different now. And so I, I call that the, the moment, like you have this moment of realization where you say, you know, I never would have flagged the waiter down before. Or I never would have sent a dish that was too cold, you know, back to the kitchen to be warmed up again. Um, but but it, so it's 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 hard to you know get that traction when you first start. It it can it can exactly like you said feel ridiculous or uh, feel futile at first. But to, but I implore people to stick with it, and the payoff will come. Yeah, I completely agree. And am I right in saying that you've just uh, finished writing a book? That's true. Yes. So uh, it's called uh, How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above Social Anxiety. And uh, it's been it was it was a, a dream come true to to write, and I've been really delighted with the uh, responses um, to the book, uh, either from you know reviews or emails of of people saying that it resonated with them and uh, helped them you know change change their lives in some cases, and so I would, I feel really privileged and grateful to uh, to be part of that and lucky to have. Um, readers and listeners of the audiobook who who felt compelled to to share their experience so it's been it's been a dream come true that's really great and in the book it uses some kind of real life examples could you just touch on a couple of them sure 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 yeah so um oh my goodness so i there are many many uh characters in the book who are you know there i've i've because i've worked with these people in a mental health setting they are all uh disguised to the point where they would not recognize themselves, I hope, um, just for their own privacy. But so there is one woman uh, named May who would, um, she was very scared to give uh, presentations at work and was in the habit of uh, mid-presentation, she would would either pass it off to a colleague or um, sometimes would, would cancel the morning of and so her fear was that she would look like a babbling idiot. Those were her words. And so what we did is we did what's called video feedback, where uh, we would have her you know, give her presentation or do the things that she was scared of in the office, so in a safe place. And I would record her on, on her own cell phone. So for, for practitioners and students out there, you can't record on your cell phone because that's a privacy violation. So you have to use the client's cell phone. Um, anyway. And so then we before before we watched her video, we would say, okay, what 
are you afraid you're going to see? What is your feared outcome? And we would try to define it as precisely and behaviorally as possible. So down to like, I will say, um, every third word, I will uh, turn beet red and in the face, I will uh, skip from topic to topic every 15 seconds. So to really get it down into you know timing and just what precisely she is afraid she's going to see. And then we would Together, we would watch her video as objectively as possible. So we would uh, look and watch and say, okay, is this person skipping from topic to topic? Is this person beat red? Is this person saying um, every you know, X number of words? And inevitably, the answer was no, that, that she, she performed way better than she thought she did and that she didn't wear her anxiety on her sleeve like she thought she did. She thought everybody could see how anxious she was because this her she didn't realize that her own internal experience wasn't broadcast on her face or you know through her body. There were some things that she that she was doing that 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 um, was broadcasting like that she was nervous. I think she would fidget or I can't remember exactly, but but those things are called safety behaviors and she could work on dropping them. But the largest lesson was that she didn't look how she felt. And that was huge for her to realize that her own internal experience and what others saw were different. So, so that, was, that was huge and uh, uh, very applicable to many folks with social anxiety. Yeah, and I suppose that kind of links back to something I, I think I had you say before, which was um, dare to be average, which is quite similar to, yeah. to like a... <laughs> a motto that I use myself which is I don't know where I got this one from but it's perfect is the enemy of good the idea that yes. your kind yes. of good is good enough um, right. and that right. when you strive I don't know in that case when she strives to give the perfect presentation um, that doesn't exist first of all but also that you think it's gone worse than it has and actually people won't have noticed half the things that you think you've done wrong. Right, right, exactly. And so I do have to give credit where credit is due. So the Dare to be Average is from uh, Dr. David Burns um, of, uh, yes, and so, uh, which, and so he, he was, he's the author of the, the first, um, the Feeling Good Handbook, which is the first um, evidence-based uh, self-help book for depression. I think it was back in 1981. So, you know, the, the authors of today stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, anyway, so that is from that is from him. But yes, perfectionism again is is a huge driver. And there's another character in the book, um, uh, Rosie, who works in a lab, and she like overcompensates and works so hard because she thinks that she herself is inadequate and so strives for perfection in in all things, but at great cost. And she, you know, throughout the chapter, <laughs> learns learns that indeed nobody's watching, and that nobody cares if she, you know, screws up on, you know, when playing pool with her lab mates, or if she has to pause to collect her thoughts briefly during a presentation. That it's okay to to have some blips and bloops, you know, in a presentation or in her social interactions, um, and that people are not going to you know, wholeheartedly reject her because she didn't perform perfectly. And that what's important instead is that we are warm and curious and kind and trustworthy and that that is what people 
care about when they're looking for a friend or a colleague. They're not looking for perfection and ultimate competence and confidence. They're looking for kindness and warmth, and we can all do that. And so that that is uh, a take-home message um, that is important both in the book and I think is applicable to, to many of us uh, who have experienced social anxiety. I really like that message. Um, so kind of just to finish up, what does what does your kind of personal practice uh, to stay mentally healthy look like? Oh, that's a great question. So I so so I I am um, I'll I'll just I'll disclose that I, so I'm 41 and it's taken me this long to realize that getting enough sleep is really the cornerstone for for staying healthy. And so I because I'm a, I I'm also kind of a recovering perfectionist. Um, you know, which which goes along with the social anxiety. But I used to think that sleep was kind of a waste of time. Like I used I, I used to think like I could be doing something. I could be you know, and you know I could be either doing work or I could be hanging out with my friends or my family. You know, and I have finally come to realize that that is not the case at all. And <laughs> that sleep is is so important and just makes everything better. Like so so that's that's number one. But in terms of um, you know that's that's for everything in general. But uh, for social anxiety, my go-to is to turn my attention inside out and to really try to engage and be curious with the people that I'm talking to. So that's one. And the other is to just initiate. Like we all, we, I, there are so many clients I see who wonder aloud, I don't know if I should say hi when I pass somebody. I don't want to bother them. If they're, you know, if they're looking at their laptop, do I say hello? And the answer is always yes. <laughs> Just always say hello. And and I think by taking on the initiative, having the onus be on on us to say hello and give a big smile, uh, is just takes away so much of that uncertainty and yields nothing but good results. So uh, I've I have learned to sleep, uh, to turn my attention inside out, and to just to say hello. Just be be the first. To initiate and that has gotten me a long way and just to finish off where can we find about more about what you do um your book your podcast your work all that kind of stuff sure no thank you for asking um so the book again is called uh, how to be yourself quiet your inner critic and rise above social anxiety you can get it wherever you like to get your books it's in you know traditional format and also on audiobook um i host a podcast called savvy psychologist comes out every Friday, and it's a general mental health and well-being podcast, and it's short and actionable. So we cover lots of different topics uh, by request from listeners, and uh, I've enjoyed doing that for uh, about four or five years now. And then finally, if you want to learn you know, more about social anxiety or, or my work, uh, ellenhendrickson.com is my home on the web. Ellen, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Just a quick reminder to say that although we may find the stuff talked about in this episode useful, if you're struggling with your mental health, please contact your GP or local health professional or contact an organisation like MIND on 0300 123 3393.